Let's begin by reading Psalm 136. Twenty-six verses of that psalm. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. O give thanks to the God of gods, for his mercy endures forever. O give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his mercy endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, for his mercy endures forever. To him who by wisdom made the heavens, for his mercy endures forever. To him who laid out the earth above the waters, for his mercy endures forever. To him who made great lights, for his mercy endures forever. The sun to rule by day, for his mercy endures forever. The moon and stars to rule by night, for his mercy endures forever. To him who struck Egypt in their firstborn, for his mercy endures forever, and brought out Israel from among them, for his mercy endures forever. With a strong hand and with an outstretched arm, for his mercy endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two, for his mercy endures forever, and made Israel pass through the midst of it, for his mercy endures forever but overthrew Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea, for his mercy endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness, for his mercy endures forever. To him who struck down great kings, for his mercy endures forever. And slew famous kings, for his mercy endures forever. Sihon, king of the Amorites, for his mercy endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, for his mercy endures forever and gave their land as a heritage, for his mercy endures forever. A heritage to Israel, his servant, for his mercy endures forever. Who remembered us in our lowly state, for his mercy endures forever. And rescued us from our enemies, for his mercy endures forever. Who gives food to all flesh, for his mercy endures forever. O give thanks to the God of heaven, for his mercy endures forever. Dear brothers and sisters, this psalm is quite similar in its theme and in some of its elements to Psalm 135. Both of the psalms are, of course, psalms of praise. Uh, And they include praise for uh, certain of the same things as well. You find, for example, in Psalm 135 that the psalm gives praise to the Lord for his work of redeeming his people from Israel. That's in verses 8 to 12, just as he gives praise to the Lord for redeeming his people from Egypt here in Psalm 136. But the Psalms are also different in certain ways, and we have to be aware of those differences. Uh, First of all, you have in Psalm 136, of course, that refrain that's repeated in every verse after every line of the psalm for his mercy endures forever. That word mercy is the uh, Hebrew word chesed, which is often translated in the old translation, the King James, as loving kindness, for his loving kindness endures forever. And it's a word that doesn't appear in Psalm 135. You also have a difference in the language. Psalm 135 begins with, the word praise, praise the Lord, praise the name of the Lord, praise him, O you servants of the Lord. 
and ends with the word bless. Bless the Lord, O house of Israel. Bless the Lord, O house of Aaron. Those words do not appear in this psalm. Instead, in this psalm, you have the word give thanks. Uh, um, And we're going to be looking at that word a little bit more closely as we work our way through this psalm. The psalm also, Psalm 136, consists of almost only one sentence. If you look at verse 3, then you find that verse 3 begins a sentence that takes you all the way to the end of verse 25. So you have the two sentences of verses 1 and 2, ignoring for a moment the refrain, and you have the one sentence at the end in verse 26, and all the rest of the psalm is one sentence. And the main clause of that one sentence is simply the words, O give thanks. And the rest of the sentence consists of prepositional phrases, sometimes uh, compound prepositional phrases, which tell us to whom and why we are to give thanks. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, to him who alone does great wonders, to him who by wisdom made the heavens, going down to verse 10, to him who struck Egypt in their firstborn, to him who led his people from through the wilderness, who remembered us in our lowly estate. You see it, all these uh, prepositional phrases and these participial phrases or or subordinate clauses that tie into that giving thanks so that the main theme of the psalm stands out very clearly. It is give thanks. We are commanded throughout the psalm to give thanks. And we are commanded to give thanks, especially to God, because his loving kindness endures forever. So we look at the psalm under that theme, giving giving thanks to the Lord, whose loving kindness endures forever. We're going to look first at verses 1 to 4. We're going to take those four verses together and look at to whom it is we are giving thanks. Then we're going to look at Uh, verses 5 to 9, and how we are to give thanks to him for his work of creation. Verses 5 to 9, focus on that theme. And then we're going to look at verses 10 to 25, and how we are to give thanks to the Lord for his faithfulness to the promise he made to Abraham hundreds of years before this psalm was written. Now, One of the characteristics of this psalm, and it's not uh, an unusual characteristic in the psalms or in uh, other passages of the scriptures as well, is that we have here what is called uh, an envelope structure or a bookend structure. The psalm begins and ends very similarly. So you have those commands at the beginning, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. And it ends the same way. Oh, give thanks to the God of heaven. And this envelope enfolds within itself then all those reasons for giving giving thanks that we find in verses 4 to 25. Or you can look at it as bookends. These bookends hold together those uh, books, if you will, of the descriptions of God's wonders 
for which we are to give thanks. That's how this all works. So verses 1 to 4, 1 to 3, and verse 26 give us the main command, and then the rest of the psalm gives us the reasons for it. Give thanks to him because of all these things. And then all these wonders of which the psalm speaks are manifestations of his loving kindness. And so we are especially to give him thanks for his loving kindness, which endures forever. So let's take a look at then verses 1 to 3 and verse 26. And let's note three things about those um, verses. First of all, you have that word, give thanks. That's different from the words we find in Psalm 135, as we've already noted. There it's praise the Lord and bless the Lord. Here it's give thanks to the Lord. And the theological word book of the Old Testament says of this word, give thanks, that its basic idea is to confess. That is, to confess one's faith. That's the way we would use the word, and that's the basic idea of the word, to confess, to confess the name of the Lord, to talk about him, therefore, to talk about him in our worship, to talk about him in our families, to talk about him in our relationships with our friends, to talk about him to the world at large, to be confessing his name before men. This is our calling, confess his name, but in the confession of his name, to be driven by the motive of thanksgiving. Confess his name with thanksgiving. We understand who he is from his works and from the scriptures. We respond to that with thanksgiving, and our thanksgiving drives us to the confession of his name. Now the second thing that we want to notice is the names of God that we have here in verses 1 to 3 and in verse 26. There are four different names of God. First of all, you have in verse 1 the name Lord in capital letters, which means it's the name Yahweh, or as the King James has it, Jehovah. Oh, give thanks to Yahweh. And that name is his personal name. The name that he revealed to Moses when he called Moses to go into Egypt and to bring his people out of Egypt and to the land of promise. It's the name which he himself means, I am. He says to Moses, go and tell Israel, I am has sent me to you. And our Lord Jesus Christ said of himself before Abraham was, I am. It designates him, therefore, as the God who is, in contrast to all the gods of the nations, as the God who is eternal, as the God who is unchangeable, as the God who is self-sufficient, as the God, therefore, who is infinitely great and infinitely exalted. It teaches us also, as Exodus 3, where he himself tells us the meaning of this name, that he is the one who remembers his promises and fulfills them. He is faithful to the covenant he made with our fathers. Give thanks to the Lord, to Yahweh. 
The second place you have in verse 2 the name God of Gods. This is a somewhat unusual name in the scriptures. He's not often called this. I think we have a very ready understanding of it. But it's a name too that emphasizes his uh, superiority. His superiority especially in this case to the gods of the nations. Now this is a very uh, striking feature of course of the scriptures. Because in the times in which the scriptures in were written, and more and more in our own times as well, people have different gods. In those days, of course, the Philistines had their Dagon, and the Moabites had their Chemosh, and the Ammonites had their Milcom, and so on. They all had their different gods, and they might even have claimed, with regard to their gods, that they were superior to the gods of the nations around. But they would always have acknowledged the existence of the gods of the nations around. They were fundamentally polytheistic, just as we are today in this country and pretty much throughout the world. What this says is that our God is God of gods exactly because he is infinitely superior to the gods of the nations. And he is infinitely superior to them, first of all, because he is Yahweh. He is the God who is, who exists. He is the God who lives. Their gods are made of wood and stone and silver and gold and cannot hear or see or speak. He is the God, our God is the God of the wonders Well, their gods are the gods who are dead and do nothing. He is therefore God of gods. Thirdly, in verse 3, we are told, give thanks to the Lord of lords. Now, we're very familiar with that phrase, Lord of lords. We apply it to our Lord Jesus Christ all the time. He is Lord of lords and King of kings. But this is not a usual name for God in the Old Testament scriptures, especially that he is Lord of Lords. And I think what the psalmist is doing here in verse 3 is he's moving down from the what we may call the heavenly level to the earthly level. And these lords that he's talking about here are earthly lords. The word here is not Yahweh, as in verse 1, but Adonai. And what this means then is that he is the Lord of all earthly lords, all those who have authority on earth. He is the master of masters. He is the boss of bosses. He is the judge of judges. He is the prince of princes. He is the chief of all chiefs. He is Lord of lords. Because all authority belongs to him in heaven and on earth. And all authorities are subject to him. And he rules over all these authorities according to his sovereign goodwill and his sovereign pleasure. And then in verse 26, we have the name God of heaven. Oh, give thanks to the God of heaven. I think, in a sense, this name encompasses the other two names, God of gods and Lord of lords. For it teaches us that he is the God who is enthroned on the heavens. The heavens are his throne and the earth is his footstool, we read in Isaiah 61. 
Heaven is his throne and earth is his footstool. He is exalted then above the heavens and the earth and above all creatures and above all conceptions that belong to heaven and earth. He is the infinitely great and the incomprehensible God. And of him then, it is said, give thanks. Give thanks to Yahweh. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. Give thanks to the God of heaven. Give thanks to him for what he is in himself. Regardless of what he has done for you, regardless of any of his works, admire and praise and give thanks to him as he is, as he is the one who is infinitely great and greatly exalted. So there's already there in those names of God reasons for the giving of thanks. But we have other reasons for giving thanks in these first verses as well. In verse 1, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Now we may speak of God being good in two different ways, I think. He is, first of all, morally good. That is, he is the uh, one who is perfect in himself, who has no shadow of sin or corruption or pollution in him. He is the unapproachable light. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. He's good in that sense, then, that there is no evil in him whatsoever. But I think the emphasis here, just as in Psalm 134, or 135, rather, falls on his beneficence. He is good to his creatures. He opens his hand wide to them. He pours out upon them an abundance of good gifts, good things. He is the God whose tender mercies are over all his works, who displays from day to day in all the works of his hands his infinite goodness. He is the overflowing fountain of all good, the giver of every good and perfect gift. Give thanks to him, for he is good. But of course, the primary reason for giving thanks to him throughout the psalm is for his loving kindness endures forever. Give thanks to him for his loving kindness endures forever. A lot of modern translations make that word loving kindness mean steadfast love. I, I don't really prefer that translation. I think the King James comes closer to the idea of the Hebrew myself and I like the translation loving kindness here. It's often closely associated, first of all, with the mercy of God. You read about his mercy and his loving kindness. I think the word mercy emphasizes his attitude of compassion towards us, while the word loving kindness emphasizes his acts of kindness that flow out of that attitude of compassion. He is, therefore, a merciful God who in his mercy acts with loving kindness towards us. And that loving kindness endures forever. We are constantly changing. Constantly changing in our faithfulness, constantly changing in our ways. But he is the one whose loving kindness endures unchangeably from age to age. And even into the age to come. It endures forever. And that word loving kindness is also associated often in the Old Testament with his 
faithfulness. You read about, not just about his mercy and his loving kindness, but about his faithfulness and his loving kindness. And those are the two attributes that stand out in his covenant promises, in the promises he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was faithful to them, faithful to those promises, so that in spite of all their sins throughout their generations, he never went back on the word that he had sworn by himself. And he was also kind to them throughout those many generations. He continued to perform acts of kindness for his people. Then finally, we want to include in this first point, verse 4. Now you can take verse 4 also with the following verses. And you can take it with the following verses because verse 4 talks about his wonders and then verses 5 through 25 really describe those wonders. But it's exactly because I want to take verses 5 to 9 separately from verses 10 to 25 that I'm Treating verse 4 here, give thanks to him, it says in verse 4, who alone does great wonders. He does wonders. That is, he does mighty works, works that are so great, so powerful, so glorious, so merciful, so righteous, that they make us stand amazed and say of him, how great is our God. And these wonders are incomparable. No other performs such wonders as our God performs. Men do many wonderful things. They do many wonders in their science. They do many wonders in their arts. They do many wonders in their sports. They do all kinds of wonders, throughout, have done all kinds of wonders throughout the history of the world, wonders of military might and, and strategy and so on. You can be amazed at many of the things that men have done, but all of them are cast in completely into the shade by the wonders which our God has done. He has done great wonders, and he alone has done such wonders as we see in the works of his hands. No works anywhere in the whole of the creation that men have done or that angels have done compare to the works that our great God has done. He alone does great wonders. Give thanks to him, the psalm says. Give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. Give thanks to him who does great wonders. For his loving kindness endures forever. Let's look then at verses 5 to 9. That the wonders that our God has done as described there in those verses. What we have here is a very brief description of his creative work. To him who by wisdom made the heavens, laid out the earth above the waters, made great lights, and so on. 
And this description of his creative works, we should notice in verses 8 and 9, spills over also into his providential works, his maintenance of his creation after he had finished making it. Because he gave the sun, he made the sun, to rule by day, and the moon and stars to rule by night. And I think you can also see here that you have a threefold division of the creation, a threefold division of the creation that's common to the whole of the scriptures. Heaven above, earth beneath, and the waters under the earth. So there is encompassed in this very brief description of his creative and providential work, the whole of the universe. The whole creation. To him who made the whole creation. This is his first wonder that he made all these things by the word of his power and that he made them all in six days as we are taught in Genesis chapter 1. Now let's look at the details. First of all we have in verse 5 to him who by wisdom made the heavens. The heavens I think are the three heavens. You remember Paul talks about the third heaven going up to the third heaven in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. The heaven where the angels dwell, the heaven of the sun, moon, and stars, and then what we call the sky, the atmosphere of our earth, the firmament as it's known in the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. Those are the heavens. God made them all. All that exists in this creation then apart from earth itself. He made it all. And he made it, we read here, by wisdom. When we talk about God's creative work, we often emphasize his power. And indeed, the creation reveals his power. Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that that the heavens uh, reveal the power in Godhead, the eternal power in Godhead of God. But here's wisdom. They reveal his wisdom. We look up into the heavens and we see his wisdom. And I think there are two things that we have to understand from that wisdom of God. First of all, wisdom has in the Old Testament partly the idea of skill. A a man who has skill in his craft, in his work, is called a wise man. God called wise men to be craftsmen for his tabernacle and for his temple. So it's skill, and when we look up into the heavens, then we see the skill of God, how he has put all the stars in their places, how he has made the galaxies and made the stars revolve around the hearts of their galaxies, how he has made the constellations, how he has made all the stars and the sun and the moon as well proceed in their courses from day to day. This is his skill, the manifestation of a skill that's far beyond the skill of men. That's the first part of his wisdom. And the second part of his wisdom is that all this skill that he has displayed in his creation is for the glory of his name. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, and notice that phrase, work of your fingers, that also emphasizes his skill was not clumsily shaping things with his hand, but finely shaping them with his fingers. The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, 
What is man that you are mindful of him? And in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utter speech, and night unto night shows knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. To him who by wisdom made the heavens, give thanks to him who by wisdom made the heavens. To him who laid out the earth above the waters. Here we are taken down to the other parts of creation. And we have here a kind of vision of the earth as being floating on the waters. You see a similar kind of thing, I think, in Psalm 24, where the psalmist speaks of the earth being founded upon the waters. You have this picture of the earth above the waters. The waters beneath the earth, the earth kind of floating on the waters, as it were. And that's not because they had a very unscientific conception of what the earth is like. They understood, as well as we do, that the roots of the mountains go down to the bottom of the seas. And so Psalm 8 talks about how God, by the blast of the breath of his nostrils, exposes the channels of the waters. They understood those things. But it's from the perspective of men, who look at earth and see how God has set a bound on the waters which they cannot pass over. And the earth is above the waters then, according to the decree of God. He laid out or he stretched out the earth above the waters. Give thanks to him who stretched out earth above the waters. And of course then you have included there the waters themselves, which he also made by his power and wisdom. Then verses 7 and 8 and 9 take us to the starry heavens again, the great lights, the sun, the moon, and the stars. He made them. These are particular manifestations of his power and wisdom, which he has set in the heavens for the glory of his great name. Notice the language. The sun rules by day, And the moon and stars rule by night. It is as if at the end of the day the sun uh, turns over its dominion to the moon and the stars and lets them rule by night. And as the dawn comes, the moon and the stars surrender their dominion to the sun so that the sun can take its course during the day. You read about it in Psalm 104. Psalm 104, verses... Uh, 19 to 23. He appointed the moon for seasons. The moon governs the seasons. The sun knows it's going down. You make darkness, and it is night, in which all the beasts of the forest creep about. The beasts of the forest are governed by the night. The young lions roar after their prey and seek their food from God. When the sun rises, they gather together and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. Sun and moon governing day and night. Sun, moon, and stars, rather, governing day and night. Give thanks to him whose sun and moon and stars do these mighty wonders, for his loving kindness endures forever. Give thanks to him, then, for the work of creation. Give thanks to him for the work of providence. 
Give thanks to him for his power. Give thanks to him for his wisdom. Give thanks to him for his creation itself. It is glorious and beautiful because it speaks to us of the glory and the power and the wisdom of our God. And then, finally, in verses 10 to 25, give thanks to him for the fulfillment of his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he traces the history of that fulfillment in a brief way in those verses. He touches on, as we look at those verses, he touches on the highlights of that work of redemption. He struck Egypt in its firstborn. This was the wonder of God by which he broke the hard heart of Pharaoh and made Pharaoh finally surrender to the necessity of letting his people go, as Moses had been saying to him. He brought out Israel from among them, from among the Egyptians. He did it, verse 12, with a strong hand and with an outstretched arm. That's a reference to all the wonders he did in Egypt, all those plagues that he brought on Egypt by the hand of Moses. He showed his strong hand and his stretched out arm. He continued his work of redemption by dividing the Red Sea into two and making Israel pass through that sea on dry ground. And when they had all passed through, he brought the waters back into the sea to overthrow Pharaoh and his army there. Give thanks to him who redeemed his people from the bondage of Egypt, who led them then through the wilderness, verse 16. And this has to do with his guiding them by the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire while they were there. That was a great wonder, wasn't it? By his a provision of bread and water for them, the manna and the water from the rock, by his protection of them from their enemies. Give thanks to him who led his people through the wilderness. Give thanks to him also who conquered before them great kings and slew famous kings, Sihon king of the Amorites and Og the king of Bashan, They were the kings who lived east of the Jordan and whose land God gave to his people by conquering them. And many other kings in the land of Canaan also under Joshua. Give thanks to him who conquered great kings. Give thanks to him who gave their land as a heritage to Israel, his servant. Verses 21 and 22. All that land flowing with milk and honey, that rich and beautiful land which had been possessed by Og and Sihon and the other kingdoms of Canaan. He displaced them all, and he gave it to his people. Give thanks to him for his mercy. His loving kindness endures forever. All these things, people of God, that we've been talking about here in verses 10 to 22 are are things that are typical of our redemption. In Christ Jesus. And we should be reminded of that as we're 
reading through these verses. This is a celebration of the greater work of redemption that God has performed in our Lord Jesus Christ. That wonder that stands out above all the other wonders that he has performed since the beginning of the world. The wonder of our salvation in our Lord Jesus Christ. He brought us out of the house of bondage, our Egypt of sin and death. He struck our enemies by his power and continues today to strike them as we wield the sword of the Spirit, which is his gospel. He divides before us the seas so that we may pass through them, the seas which signify death, being baptized in the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. He leads us through the wilderness of this world provisioning us, protecting us, and guiding us in every step of the way. He conquers before us our enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh. And ultimately, he gives us the land of promise, the better country, the heavenly Canaan, the land of peace and righteousness and abundance. All this in our Lord Jesus Christ. Give thanks to him who has worked for you a great and marvelous redemption. In verses 23 to 25, we have a little bit more on this theme. Who remembered us in our lowly state and rescued us from our enemies. He's talking there, I think, about the many times in the history of Israel when they were in a lowly state. The times during the period of the judges, for example, when he sent pagan nations to oppress them because of their idolatry. The Moabites and the Canaanites and the Midianites and the Philistines and all these other nations who oppressed them at many times. He's talking there about the times during the history of Israel's kings when nations attacked them and caused them many griefs and many problems, killed them and took many of them captive. He's talking there, if this psalm was written after that time anyway, he's talking there about the captivity in Babylon when they were removed from their land. They lived many, many times in their histories, in their history in lowly states under the oppression of enemies. And yet, Yet he never forgot them. He always remembered them. He always came back to them with his loving kindness and restored them again. Just as he does for us today, he remembers us in our lowly state and rescues us from our enemies. He forgets many nations, people of God, Over the history of the world, many nations and empires have risen and fallen and gone to dust. But the nation and the kingdom of his people has continued to exist throughout all ages. From the time that he spoke his promise to Adam in the beginning up until the very present. He has never forgotten his people. He always is faithful, always remembers us in our lowly state, and rescues us from our enemies. For his loving kindness endures forever. Give thanks to him.
And finally, he gives food to all flesh. I think in all flesh, in that term all flesh, is included not only men, but also beasts. You read about that in Psalm 104 again, verses 9 and following in Psalm 104, 10 and following rather. He sends the springs into the valleys, they flow among the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field, the wild donkeys quench their thirst. By them the birds of the heavens have their home, they sing among the branches. He waters the hills from his upper chambers, the earth is satisfied with the fruit of your works. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the service of man, that he may bring forth food from the earth, and wine that makes glad the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread which strengthens man's heart. He gives food to all flesh. Give thanks to him, for his loving kindness endures forever. So the psalm, people of God, is a call to us to live in a constant remembrance of the greatness of our God and of the great wonders that he has done for us. And in that constant remembrance of our great God, to live thankfully and to confess his name thankfully before all men. Because in all his works, he displays his greatness and his loving kindness, which endures forever. In your worship, in your prayers, in your obedient living, in your dependence on him from day to day, in all your conversation with all the people you meet, give thanks to him, for his loving kindness endures forever. Give thanks to Yahweh. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. Give thanks to the God of heaven because his mercy endures forever. Give thanks to him who does great wonders for you and for all his creatures for his mercy endures forever. May God bless us by his word.